Catherine was desperate for help. Unmarried and finding herself in the family way, she knew that her only option was to beg a doctor to help her. She heard rumors of a family doctor who might be able to help her out, and so she went to see him. Leaving the doctor's office, Catherine was promised that the two pills she held in her hand would solve all of her problems. Matrix. Stay tuned to hear all about that on The Reluctant Historian. I'm Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian, Dakota Lawson. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. So if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. We would like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. Okay, Koda, what do you think we're talking about this week? Well, I, I recall that last week uh, you said we were going to do like a double murder thing, I think. Yes. Right. So, but at the start, you said she was really desperate and she wasn't unmarried. So it was like, is she really desperate for someone to marry her? Like, please, please take me as your own. So she was in the family way. What? What does that mean? Oh, she's pregnant. It? <laughs> it's a euphemism for her being pregnant. No, I thought you said she wasn't married. Yes. What? <laughs> Un- unmarried sex? <laughs> yes. That so- is a that is a, a sin. Uh, <laughs> God will smite her, surely. <laughs> well, so did you... Should I explain to you the introduction? I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and then you led into two pills, then I was like, the Matrix. So, yeah. let me think of uh, the Matrix. Yeah, so um, she's pregnant. She ooh is ooh. not married. Okay, 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 okay. So Morpheus, the Matrix. So <laughs> he offers her a, uh, a a a blue pill. If you take this blue pill, it's actually just a sugar pill, and will do, do absolutely nothing. But if you take this red pill, it'll you'll lose the baby. Is it like kind of like that? Like it's like yeah, you're kind of like on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. this week we are talking about Canada's actual Jack the Ripper, because there's two of them, apparently. What What do you mean, actual Jack the Ripper? Well, last week's episode was called Canada's Jack the Ripper, but then I told, like, when I was doing research, two stories kept coming up, so the Agnes Bing's murder, yeah. which we talked about last week, and then this guy's story, so he's also called Canada's Jack the Ripper, so it's confusing and fun. That's That's so fun. So this person may have been Canada's first serial killer. His name is Dr. Cream. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cream. Yes. What, uh, <laughs> I just, um, ugh, that's a terrible name for a doctor. <laughs> Might yeah. as well call him Dr. Cream Pie while you're at it. You know, double down on the terribleness of that. Hello, I'm Dr. Cream. I'm delivering your milk. Oh, God. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and, huh. So tell me about this Dr. Cream pie. Well, would you like to share your golden nugget? I forgot how this podcast works. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to know so much about this cream pie. Uh, <laughs> there, See, I, I found a joke that I like, and I'm running with it. Last week it was the gooch. Nice. <laughs> It's really highbrow humor here, the reluctant oh, historian. Truly. So, yeah, my golden nugget. Uh, yesterday, uh, it was my sister, younger sister's birthday party. Um, she's turning 
26 tomorrow. Yep. Which is wild that she's that old. I, I remember, uh, you know, my, my... Okay, so my golden nugget is about Nintendo Switch Sports that we played Not about together. your sister's birthday, which no, would have been, like, her. really cute. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's about an experience we had together. Oh. Which was really nice, okay? Oh. So we... Uh, I would have liked to play this this more with, with her because... Um, we should invite her over. Maybe. Because I won't play it with that her. Don't, yeah, I know. You won't. But so basically Nintendo Switch Sports is a newer version of Wii Sports. Mm-hmm. We all remember Wii Sports. I hated it. It was the best. Worst. So it, the year was 2007. Best year. Sorry, I'll stop interrupting you. Thank you. What are you, me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so 2007, February 14th, I believe. I believe it was Valentine's Day when I got my Nintendo. No, not my switch what am i thinking my nintendo wii yes and i set it up and it asked me to give it a nickname and i was like this is the hardest decision i've ever had to make (laughs) and i'm not kidding like most kids believe most i was 15 most kids would have been or teenagers would have been like oh whatever just uh, boobs and then (laughs) moved on this is my nintendo wii boobs But I sat there for like, I swear, at least a half an hour. I could have got to my games. I was like, no, my uh, Wii needs a good name. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up calling it Anastasia. Oh. oh, I remember this story. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll go into the other part of it. Years later, I got a Nintendo DS and <laughs> me and Mackenzie took um, pictures because he's my younger sister. We took pictures of, um, so me and... Anastasia were married and we uh, took birthing photos <laughs> of my Nintendo Wii giving birth to a Nintendo DS. You were which, the father? Um, God, I hope so. <laughs> so uh, She was in the family way. Yeah, so I was doing the delivery too. We didn't have a doctor. Um, Unfortunately. No Dr. So I, cream for you. No Dr. Cream pie for me. And so I was just like holding uh, the, the Nintendo DS as I was like pulling it out of the Wii. Uh, and that's probably not even one of the weirdest things that we've done. It's true. A couple years ago, uh, I decided to do a boudoir calendar <laughs> for Christmas and give it to my friends. Ugh. And <laughs> I made Mackenzie take the pictures. Poor Mackenzie. <laughs> they were like too scandalous. It, no, it, was, it was, like... was me in really short shorts yeah. and like a nice white t-shirt and being all sexy and doing the sexy? classic. Yes, doing the classic <laughs> poses, you know, that you would do in boudoir. Yes. So, anyways, back on track. We were playing Switch Sports last night, and there was a new game, Badminton, that we were playing, which plays very similar to how tennis does. And we were playing, and we were just, like, going back and forth, back and forth. I had a grin on my face the whole time. I was like, man, this is crazy. We used to, like, play this all the time. And another thing about this game is that, man, my body worked a lot better when I was 15. (laughs) Because you get a lot, now that I'm 30, I get a lot more tired from it. So anyways, that's my golden nugget. What is yours? Well, mine's a lump of coal. I have been struggling with back problems this week. I don't know what has happened, but my L5 is all out of whack. Um, So I've just been in a lot of pain all week, and the weekend was really bad. So while they were playing badminton, I was lying in bed trying not to move so yeah we had them had guests over for her birthday and i stayed in bed the whole time so it's nice it was very rude of you i know (laughs) yeah 
So I'm really hoping that it will get better. Fun story. I actually have a broken back. I didn't know this. I think I probably broke it when I was like 19 and was wrestling um, because I had an MRI done about two months ago and Mm -hmm. they discovered that my L1 is broken. It's got a fracture. Yeah. It's a crack in your back, right? A crack in my back. Crack in your back. Your pussy and your crack. No, just just my back is cracked. (laughs) Um, It's interesting though. The injury I've sustained is quite a rare injury. Oh, is it? Um, Yeah. The way that you would break your back this way is very hard to do. They usually see it in like football players and rugby players. Okay. Um, But, and also me. And also you, a, uh, a, a wrestler. Yeah so, yeah. so my chiropractor thinks that um, they just like twerked me in the wrong way. So. They twerked you in the wrong way. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Cool. So I think, I think I'm in, uh, in line for lots of back problems moving forward. Oh, that's, as I get that's older. fun. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it's, yeah. If they ever make us cyborgs, I'm calling dibs on the first spine. But yet, yet you won't uh, put a chip in your head. Did I say that? I don't know. I feel like it's something <laughs> you would say. <laughs> I mean, probably not. I don't know. No, I just want a new spine, a titanium mm. spine. That would be What great. if Elon Musk was behind it? Fuck no. <laughs> Get away from me, Elon Musk. So as I said, I came across Dr. Cream when I was researching last week's episode. Yeah, I got, I came across some Dr. Cream as well while I was doing some research. <laughs> Stop it. Um, so I was interested in his story and I decided to research him. So... Thomas Neil Cream was a doctor living and working in Scotland and then in Canada and then also in London, England. He's also known as the Lambeth Poisoner, a serial killer who poisoned his victims over the course of his career. He murdered up to 10 people in three different countries, targeting mostly lower-class women, sex workers, and pregnant women seeking abortions. Born in Glasgow, Scotland, Cream was raised just outside of Quebec City after his father moved there in 1854. He was a student at McGill University in Montreal and then graduated with a doctorate of medicine in 1876. In 1878, he obtained additional qualifications as a physician and surgeon in Edinburgh. He then returned to North America, seeking to practice in a community that was in need of physicians, and after a brief stint in Des Moines, Iowa, he relocated to London, Ontario. In 1876, while living in Waterloo, Quebec, which I didn't know they had a Waterloo in Quebec, but anyways... Cream met a woman named Flora Brooks, and they began courting. Brooks became pregnant a few months later after Cream had promised to marry her. He attempted to perform an abortion on her, but failed. <laughs> well, he was a doctor. Did she want that? I don't know. <laughs> okay, it just, it just jumped from like... It does, yeah. The, the, this like, it's like, I imagine like it was a, like a tale like, oh, they're just so happy that they got pregnant and stuff like that. And then it's well, like... Well, they got pregnant before they got married so oh right so they're gonna burn in hell is what you're saying yes (laughs) yes so the abortion failed leaving her severely ill he tried to escape to montreal but was caught by flora's father who forced him to return and to marry her (laughs) do you have a shotgun with him or (laughs) you're gonna marry my daughter you (laughs) son of a bitch the day after the wedding he left for england to continue his medical education the brooks family never saw or heard from him again Mm. Flora Brooks almost fully recovered, but then died of consumption in 1877. Consumption? What's that? It's like a lung disease. Oh. Thought it was just like eating yourself to death, which sounds nice. (laughs) Cream returned to North America in 1878 and established a medical practice in London, Ontario. He was first charged under Ontario's Medical Act with practicing without a license and would later plead guilty. 
In court, Cream claimed it was all a misunderstanding. He had submitted the required fees, but the Ontario Medical Council had failed to issue a license. However, this did not deter patients from coming to him for help. In 1879, a young girl approached the privy, so that's like an outhouse, Mm. behind... (laughs) Uh, A young woman approached the shitter. (laughs) Behind Bennett's fancy store, her family's business in London, Ontario. As she opened the door, she found a woman in her mid-twenties seated inside, motionless and slumped against the wall. (laughs) How long you gonna be? The girl fetched her brother, thinking the woman must have been drunk or asleep. They alerted a police officer, and when Constable William Ryder touched the woman, he found that she was dead. William Ryder? That's a cool name. That's all I got. I just think it's it's a neat name. Hey, I'm William Ryder. All right. You know? Yeah, it's good. it is a good name. It's a cool name. It is a cool name. So the woman's dead. Yeah, they should have drawn dicks on her. On the seat beside the body was a small silk handkerchief and an upright, uncorked medicine bottle containing a colorless liquid. Oh, I sort of started my intro with he gave her a liquid, but I thought he gave her a pill. Oh, okay. (laughs) Jeez, make me think this was a a better sequel to uh, The Matrix and The Matrix Resurrections. Pills. Oh, that was a bad movie. Pills come into it later on. Oh, okay. Ryder summoned a doctor, James Niven, who estimated that she had been dead since daybreak. He detected an odor familiar to any medical man, chloroform. Mm. The woman's nose and cheeks were blotched and raw. They were burned. Dr. Niven suspected contact with the chemical. However, before the body was removed for an autopsy, another doctor showed up. His office was on an upper floor beside the Bennett store, so close to where this woman was found. A landing and an outdoor stairway connected his building to the privy in the backyard. This man identified the woman as a maid at the nearby Tecumseh House Hotel, and he knew her name too, Catherine Gardner. She had consulted him several times. A reporter at the scene jotted down the name of this helpful bystander, Dr. Cream. The London Free Press broke the news on May 3rd, stating that, quote, the general opinion is that it is a case of suicide. It was believed that the woman had been pregnant, and to hide her shame, it is believed that she took poison. Mm. Dr. John R. Flock, the city of London's coroner, quickly ordered an inquest into Gardner's death, but a crucial mistake had already been made. Her body had been removed from the outhouse before it could be viewed by a coroner's jury. A manual issued to Ontario coroners had warned that murderers have been known to purposely place their victims in positions calculated to indicate accidental or suicidal death. Interesting. Yes. At the inquest, friends and co-workers at the Tecumseh House Hotel were sworn in and described the woman they knew as Kitty. Catherine Gardner had grown up on a farm near Kincardine, about 100 miles north of London. She had been feeling ill and had left the hotel a week earlier. No one thought she was suicidal. Dr. James Niven had completed the autopsy and revealed why Gardner felt unwell. She had been two months pregnant. He did not, however, suspect suicide. The burns on her face showed the chloroform had been held tightly against the skin, using a handkerchief that had been forcibly applied by some other person standing in front of the deceased. So the chloroform burned her? Yes. That can happen? I guess so. Huh. Interesting. You know, um, I mean, that's such a, I think, you know, you hear about like people using chloroform to knock, whether it's in, you know, actual reality or like a... A, a joke in a, in a in a comedy show <laughs> yeah. but but uh yeah i never i just thought that it would just make a person pass out i never thought of like was it maybe the length they held it on like i don't know yeah and i think like with the, the forcefulness probably yeah yeah, yeah. 
Okay, interesting. Yeah. In his opinion, Gardner had been murdered. London was rife with rumors about who might have been responsible. One name kept popping up at the inquest. Gardner was last seen alive on the Friday evening before her death, walking along Dundas Street towards Cream's office. Mm. Sarah Long, a Tecumseh House hotel maid who had roomed with Gardner, identified the baby's father as a man named Johnson who lived in another town. Johnson! (laughs) Then she shocked onlookers with a sinister tale of deceit and attempted blackmail. Gardner had gone to Cream for an abortion, but he had refused to provide drugs or to perform the operation. Instead, Sarah claimed, Cream had urged Gardner to seduce one of the Tecumseh House's residents, a wealthy businessman named William H. Burl. She could then accuse Burl of being the father, and Cream, as her doctor, had promised to back her paternity claim. The next witness was Burl, who assured Flock he had never met or spoken to Gardner. Then it was Dr. Cream's turn. He had met Gardner soon after his arrival in the city, and he had treated her for minor ailments. An examination on April 5th had confirmed that she was pregnant. This is a quote from him. She offered me $100 to make her right. I said I would not touch her for $1,000. She cried in my office and said she would poison herself. I said I could do nothing for her. Three days later, he continued, a letter was slipped under his office door. Gardner's name was at the bottom, and Cream said he recognized her handwriting. He handed it over to the coroner earlier in the day. The letter said, I am getting worse and getting stouter every day. As I told you before, Mr. W.H. Burl is the cause of my troubles. He says he will pay you well if we make this all right. Cream insisted that he had seen Gardner for the last time on April 20th and claimed there was no chloroform in his office. And then surprisingly, he was not questioned about this alleged blackmail plot. Mm. The letter did not appear to be genuine. Robert Gardner, her brother, later testified that he would recognize her handwriting anywhere, and it had been written by someone else. What? No. (laughs) The jurors deliberated for more than 90 minutes before announcing a verdict. Catherine Gardner had been murdered, poisoned with chloroform, administered to her by some person or persons to us unknown. They also identified Johnson as the father of Gardner's unborn child, clearing Burl of all blame whatsoever. Johnson was the father? Yes. No. I like Johnson. I don't want him to go to hell. (laughs) There was no exoneration for Cream, who remained the prime suspect. The free press urged its readers to keep an open mind. While the doctor appeared to be cognizant of some details of the transaction, an editorial cautioned two days after the verdict that the evidence does not connect him with it in any improper way. The evidence implicating Cream was circumstantial but damning. He was her doctor, she had begged him to make her right, and by his own admission, he had offered him a hefty fee if he provided drugs or performed an abortion. Her body was found only steps from his building. There were whispers he had administered the chloroform as an anesthetic so that he could perform an abortion, but the chemical had killed her. They believed then that Cream planted her body in the outhouse and staged it to look like a suicide. Dr. Flock made no effort to challenge Cream's self-serving claims. Fulfilling his final duty as coroner, he submitted the verdict and a transcript of the testimony to the local prosecuting attorney. Hold on here. Also, the whole, if you're going to kill yourself, like, or if you're going to frame, like, make it seem like someone's killed themselves, put them somewhere else other than an outhouse. I don't know about you, but if I was going to kill myself, I I would not want the last smell I smell to be human shit, (laughs) you know? That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) The authorities, however, took no further action, and Gardner's murder was never solved. What? 
Yeah. So I talked at length about Catherine Gardner's death, but for the scale and scope of the story, I won't be going in as depth into the rest of the murders. But I will tell you about them okay. after this break. <laughs> no, we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> that would be a great place to have sponsors, hey? Yeah. It's, it's true. Uh, sponsor sp- us. Sponsor us, HelloFresh. <laughs> I've used you. You're You're delightful. Yes. Cream then moved to Chicago and set up a medical practice not far from the red light district where he offered illegal abortions to sex workers. But I thought he wasn't into giving abortions. I think he was, but only when it like suited him. Right. Like, so that's story... He thought she was a cop. <laughs> so that story, right? Like she's dead. So he, yeah. he doesn't want to have it be that he was the last person to be with her. So when he says, I said no, it was yeah. probably a lie. Yeah. Because we know that he did it in the future. Right. And he tried to do it to his wife or his ex-wife. Which, wait, do we know if he if she wanted that or no? Um, I didn't find anything if she wanted it or not. Hmm. I'm guessing no, because it fits the narrative that he's a bad dude. Right. Um, he was investigated in August 1880 after the death of Mary Ann Faulkner, a woman on whom he had allegedly operated, but he escaped prosecution for this crime due to a lack of evidence. Then, in December 1880, another patient of Cream's, Miss Stack, died. In April 1881, a woman named Alice Montgomery died of strychnine poisoning following an abortion in a rooming house that was barely a block away from Cream's office. The case was ruled a murder, but was also never solved. However, the location, time period, and method of death make Cream a likely suspect in this death. On July 14, 1881, Daniel Stott died of strychnine poisoning at his home in Boone County, Illinois, after Cream supplied him with an alleged remedy for epilepsy. The death was attributed to natural causes, but Cream wrote to the coroner blaming the pharmacist for the death after Cream attempted to blackmail the pharmacist a thing that he had also attempted to do with the death of Miss Stack. So he would send letters to these pharmacists and say, if you don't give me $5,000, I'll tell the people that you screwed up the the or the or medicine or whatever, oh. and that you're the reason why these people are dead. What? Yeah. Um, this time, Cream was arrested along with a woman named Mrs. Julia Abby Stott, who was the wife of Daniel Stott. Mm who had allegedly become Cream's mistress and had actually come to Cream asking for a poison to kill her husband with. She turned witness for the state and turned against Cream in order to avoid going to jail herself, laying the blame on Cream, which left him to face a murder conviction on his own. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. When Daniel's friends put up a tombstone for him, it read, Daniel Stott died June 12, 1881, aged 61 years, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. Oh. So... If you get poisoned, I guess we can put that on your tombstone. That I was poisoned by Dr. Cream? <laughs> and your wife. And my, and my wife? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> However, this part boggles my mind, Cream was released from prison in July 1891 after the governor commuted his sentence following Cream's brother pleading for leniency. It's also alleged that he bribed the authorities. Mm. So I guess in the 1890s, if you go to jail for life, you just have to say, no, he's a good guy. <laughs> and give them some money and they'll let you out. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so, Cream is now free and out on the town. <laughs> we gotta go out on the town. Cream pies for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Using money inherited from his father, Cream sailed for England, arriving in Liverpool on October 1st, 1891. He went to London and lived in the area called Lambeth, which at the time was riddled with poverty, petty crime, and sex work. 
On October 13, 1891, Ellen Donworth, a 19-year-old sex worker, received two letters from Cream asking her to meet him. She did, and he offered her a drink from a bottle. That night, she became violently ill and died from what was later found to be strychnine poisoning. During her inquest, Cream wrote to the coroner offering to name the murderer in return for a £30,000 reward. This letter came under the pseudonym A. O'Brien, Detective. On October 20th, Cream met with a 27-year-old sex worker named Matilda Clover and offered her pills, instructing her to take four before bed. She began experiencing violent, painful spasms later that night and died two hours later. Oh. Yeah. He just did that for fun? Apparently. Oh, damn. Her death was assumed to be heart failure due to alcohol withdrawal. Again, Cream wrote a letter to a prominent physician stating that he knew this other doctor was involved in the murder. He claimed to have evidence and demanded 25,000 pounds for his silence. Uh-huh. So he likes to blackmail people saying, I know you killed this person. Uh, who, like... d- who doesn't like to blackmail people? <laughs> In response, the doctor contacted Scotland Yard and they set a trap for the bat. And they set a trap for the for black- the Batman. <laughs> No, now I have to keep that in. (laughs) They set a trap for the blackmailer when he would come to collect the money. However, no one showed up and no one was caught. After a brief vacation back to Canada, Cream returned to London where he met Louise Harvey, another sex worker. He offered her two pills, which he insisted that she swallow right away. Harvey was instantly suspicious of this weirdo, (laughs) and so she pretended to swallow them, but actually threw them from a bridge into the River Thames. Mm Mm-hmm. On April 11th, Cream met two more sex workers, Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel, when he spent the night with them in their flat. There, he offered them three pills each and a can of tinned salmon. Oh. <laughs> the worst part for you, hey? Well, yeah, but I'm just like, just, wait, this was at their place? Yeah. I'm just like the worst uh, host gift ever. <laughs> I guess I brought you uh, these pills. They were just in my pocket. And uh, the salmon, uh, half eaten. It's quite yummy. Here you go. Cream left soon after, and both women died later that night from, can you guess? Uh, Salmonella. (laughs) But uh, Strychnine poisoning. What? So Cream's out and about murdering people and blackmailing people. And through these blackmail letters, Cream succeeded in only drawing attention to himself. Not only did the police quickly determine the innocence of those accused, but they noticed something telling in the accusations made by the anonymous letter writer. He had referred to the murder of Matilda Clover. In fact, Clover's death had been registered under natural causes due to her drinking. The police quickly realized that the false accuser who had written the letter was the actual serial killer, now referred to as the Lambeth Poisoner. Not long afterward, Cream met a policeman from New York City who was visiting London. The policeman had heard of the Lambeth Poisoner, and Cream gave him a brief tour of where the various victims had lived. The American happened to mention this to the British policeman, who found Cream's detailed knowledge of the case suspicious. (laughs) Don't be suspicious. Don't Don't be be suspicious. suspicious. The police at Scotland Yard put Cream under surveillance and soon discovered his habit of visiting sex workers. They also conducted an investigation in the United States and in Canada in order to learn about their suspect's history, including the conviction of murder with poison in 1881, where he was supposed to go to jail for life, but didn't. You, you can't prove anything. I just like the whores. <laughs> no, this was, 18, this was him. I didn't say that. That's true. I I, I call them sex workers. Good boy. Okay, because <laughs> apparently you can't say prostitute anymore. 
On June 3rd, 1892, Cream was arrested for the murder of Matilda Clover, and on July 13th, he was formally charged with the murders of Clover, Donworth, Marsh, and Shrivel, the attempted murder of Harvey, as well as extortion. Cream's trial lasted from October 17th to October 21st, and after a deliberation of only 12 minutes, the jury found him guilty uh, That was quick. <laughs> <laughs> of all counts. Cream was sentenced to death. Less than a month after his... <laughs> Cream was sentenced to cream pies. <laughs> he had to get his own. Taste of his own medicine, if you will. <laughs> Less than a month after his conviction, on the 15th of November, Cream was hanged at Newgate Prison. As was customary with all executed criminals, his body was buried the same day beneath the flagstones of the prison, along with other executed criminals marked by one initial. In 1902, his body was disinterred and moved to London's Municipal Cemetery, where it now rests in an unmarked grave. So why did Dr. Cream do these things? Yeah, why? Well, the motivation for these poisonings has never been settled, but it's generally assumed that Cream was a sadist who enjoyed the thought of his victims' agonized deaths and his control over them, even if he was not physically present to witness them. So I disagree with that, mm. um, and other people would also disagree with that. Okay, was that? Uh, because... Of all the blackmailing. So right. I'll say it in a few sentences here. Sure. But I have a I think he had a different motivation. Okay, so. okay. But when I first learned about cream, I was a bit confused because I originally believed that most poisoners were women. That's uh what I had heard that mm. women are the only poisoners. Right. That yes. But that is not true. What? Yes. So here was a fun fact I learned today. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief. The majority of convicted poisoners are, in fact, men. What? Really? And more so when the victim is a woman. It's a woman. When the victim is a man, the poisoner can be equally likely to be a man or a woman. Mm. Career-wise, poisoners are overrepresented in the medical or caretaking professions, of which Dr. Cream was, in fact, a doctor. Mm -hmm. This tends to be due to the fact that they have easy access to both the means to kill and a plethora of vulnerable victims. Experts believe the number of convicted poisoners is just the tip of the icebergs and that poisonings could be underreported by about 20 to 30 percent. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's hard to catch a poisoner. Yeah. Easier to catch a predator. <laughs> so understanding the poisoner's personality can only be made from studying those who have been caught. Killing someone by poison by its very nature requires careful planning and sneakiness, like giving them a tin of salmon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So it comes as no surprise that poisoners tend to be cunning, sneaky, and creative. They tend to avoid physical confrontation and instead rely on verbal and emotional manipulation to get the, what they want from others. Convicted poisoners also tend to have a sense of inadequacy, for which they compensate through a scorn for authority, a strong need for control, wish-fulfillment fantasies, and a self-centered, exploitive, interpersonal style. They were often either spoiled as a child or raised in an unhappy home. They are developmentally stunted, and they view other people without empathy, and the poisoner's internal compass is guided by greed, mm. or lust, rather than morals. And because the poison is often not detected at the beginning, the power and control that poisoners experience with success tends to increase their confidence in future endeavors. So back to Cream and his motive. It seems that Cream was also quite interested in money, which is evident in his attempts at extortion in almost all of his crimes. 
So I believe that he committed the murders under the pretense of ill-planned attempts to profit from them. So he's like, I can blackmail these people and get some money. But like he hadn't thought that part through and was Mm -hmm. like, I guess I'll just like send a letter saying, I know you did it, even though they didn't do it. Right. Well, there was a but there was a couple that he just killed, didn't he? He just like sent them on their way with pills and they just died. Uh, Yes. But I think the majority of them he tried to blackmail. Oh, interesting. Yeah. From the start of the series of crimes, Cream wrote blackmail notes to prominent people, and the poisoning of his one known male victim, Daniel Stott, was committed with the hope that Stott's wealthy widow would share the deceased's estate with Cream. In addition to the five poisonings Cream was convicted of, he is suspected in the murder of his wife, Flora what? Brooks, in 1877. So we thought she died of consumption, but they think he probably poisoned her and, anyways, died. Yeah, I could believe that. Yeah. And at least four other women who died in his care while undergoing abortions. Mm. So, Dakota, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that was pretty good. I uh, The actual Jack the Ripper, he was never caught, right? Correct. Okay. Well, way to go, Dr. Cream. You're making Canada look <laughs> bad, okay? Getting caught and shit. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, so he's from Canada? Well, he was born in Scotland, and then his family moved to Canada, and he grew up in Canada, and, and then the ma- school in Canada. And then the majority of the story took place in London. <laughs> also correct. So it's like, <laughs> was this a Canadian story? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> this is like, because um, Jack the Ripper was also London, wasn't he? Yeah, actually, he was killing people just a couple months before this happened. So, so some people were like, oh, Dr. Cream actually was Jack the Ripper, but he mm. wasn't in London when Jack the Ripper was doing right. his murders. So. Right, yeah. So anyways, I mean, you know, and then there's that thing with the salmon and the, the pills that he gave uh, that I go back to. I, I, I think that <laughs> he offered up both almost like a choice, like, like which one would you rather? <laughs> and they're like, well, those pills would probably get me like flying high as a kite, that salmon, I'll go with the pills. <laughs> you know, so like he he gave a bad option or two bad options, but you know one less bad. Yeah, um, which actually killed them. They sh- they should have took the salmon, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I think uh you know just a bad bad boy. Bad boy. He's a bad boy. So I will give this uh seven point. Six cream pies out of ten. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I well, know you. What else could I give it? You know, I, I, but a cream pie. Sorry, you know. What was the score? Seven point eight. Seven point six. Don't get eight point six. Fuck you. Seven point six. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Well, that's all we have for today. Uh, we'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please download our podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review or tell your friends about us because indie podcasts really do grow through word of mouth. And if you want to stay in contact, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian, on Facebook under The Reluctant Historian Podcast, or leave us a tip at buymeacoffee.com slash the historian. You can also shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted to the reluctant historian at gmail.com. I nailed that. You really did, Thank babe. You. I'm so proud of you. So we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. And remember, kids, don't take salmon from strangers. (laughs) 